You'll find um, tonight's reading at page 293. We're looking at 1 Samuel, chapters 21 through chapter 23. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual wherever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day... David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gebeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, 
Will the son of Jesse give all you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me, but he does, to, he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him? so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let the king accuse your servant of any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king, the king then ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. So David and his men went to Kilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Kilah. 
Saul was told that David had gone down to, gone to Kilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Kilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horash and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father, Saul, will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horash. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabiah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horash on the hill of Hakila, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and he stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selahamalakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we pray that as we uh, read these extraordinary, uh, well, they're not stories, it's history. These true accounts of how you were at work in the lives of these people. We pray that you would expand our trust in you. Help us to see you as the great, the mighty God, the God of David. Deepen our trust, we pray. Amen. 
I'm not sure if you've noticed, but there is a leadership election happening in this country. News. I don't know whether you're interested in politics or not. Uh, some of you may not care about politics, but you should care about this one. Because given all that's going on in this country and in the world, it really actually matters who ends up leading us for the next, well, until they get a vote of no confidence or whatever happens. It, it really matters. The incoming Prime Minister has got some massive issues to deal with. And I'm not just talking about paying for Boris's redecorations of number 10. They've got huge problems. Putin's aggression. Rampant inflation. An evaporated trust in the police. An energy crisis. Fracturing of the union in this country. A whole heap of things that are actually crucial to our our security, our well-being and our comfort. Who do you trust to lead us through this? I'm not going to do a poll now. Now look, one way to think about Christianity is that it is the ultimate leadership election. Not who do you trust uh, politically to lead this country, but who do you trust for your life? That's the question that Christianity poses to each one of us. Who do you trust for your life? It's a big decision and and whether you're thinking about putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, whether you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're still working out, do I want to put my trust in Jesus? Or I guess actually like most of us here, it's the, we've kind of done that in a big sense, but every morning we still wake up and there is the question each day as I wake up, will I trust Jesus today? Today I'll face decisions, today I'll face conflict today I'll face opportunities will I trust and obey Jesus through all that I face today decision we face every day and whether we do so whether we take the step to trust Jesus in a in a kind of ultimate I'm going to get baptized and declare myself a Christian and and in the ongoing everyday sense whether I will trust Jesus each day it really boils down to whether I think He is going to protect, to provide, and to guide. I'm going to face a whole heap of stuff every day. Who do I think is going to protect me? Who do I think is going to provide for me? And who do I trust to guide me? In a world of uncertainty, danger, opportunity, you need to know who is going to be your leader. And look, these are three chapters we've just had read of David on the run. We see him learn that he can, he can rely on this God in the most extreme of circumstances. He can rely on this God to protect him, to provide for him and to guide him. And my prayer as I was preparing this week is that every single one of us here will leave confident. I can trust this God to protect, to provide and to guide Imagine how bold, how confident, how peaceful our lives would be if we, if we shared David's experience of God and learned to trust him that way. Okay, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, we've seen it's about God raising up a king for his people. David was anointed back in chapter 16. But the day when he actually takes the crown looks further away than ever as he flees as a fugitive, on the run from the paranoid dictator who currently wears the crown, King Saul. Now the final third of 1 Samuel is David on the run. That's 
plot spoiler, I'm sorry, but the whole final third is David on the run from Saul. He's hunted relentlessly and it's full of great stories. But to be honest, as I've gone through it, it is quite repetitive. And you wonder, why, why on earth, you know, we get the idea. He's on the run and Saul doesn't kill him. But it goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And you wonder, why on earth does, does Samuel record it in such great detail? But when you turn to the book of Psalms, I think you start to understand. Now the Psalms, uh, which are songs and prayers in the middle of the Bible, and they teach us how to relate to God in all of life, in rejoicing and in sorrow, in, in doubt and in confidence, in desperation and in peace. And David wrote about 75 of them. Their, their traditional title is the Psalms of David because he wrote half of them, at least 75 of them. And almost all, you know, the vast majority of David's Psalms, they just have the title of David, a Psalm. Not very creative, but when you've written 75, you run out of creative ideas. But he's, they just say of David, a Psalm. But of the ones, of the few that have a title, seven of them are tied to these three chapters. Seven of them, he says, I wrote this at this point when I was living in Gath and terrified of being killed by King Achish or when I just escaped from there. The point is, David is saying it was this experience of, of struggle and of danger and of, and of need. This is when my relationship with God grew so deep and rich and resilient. It's in suffering and struggle that he, he grows close to God. And he wants us to see, well, by, by tying so many Psalms to these chapters, he's saying, look, I want you to learn. It is experiences like this that enable you to get this close to God. We'll think more about that as we go on. Now, the last thing to say before we dive in is uh, you do see contrasting character arcs in these chapters of Saul and David. Saul, God's anointed king, the first king of Israel. But you see his demise, his disintegration here into a paranoid murderer whose religion is hypocrisy and who's willing to slaughter the priests of God to cling to power. David, by contrast, as Saul is heading down the escalator into the pit, David is heading up. We see him increasingly not lie to save his own skin as he does at the start, but take responsibility for others, risk his life to save others, turn again and again to God for guidance, and grow in trust and obedience of God. As ever, though, the Bible is not a series of character studies. The primary lesson of the Bible is always about God. And what we're going to see is we can trust God to protect, to provide, and guide. It's a lesson David learned, and it's the lesson for you and me tonight. As I said, it's not a 10-point sermon. It, this is just, these are the 10 scenes, and we're going to run through them. We won't read every verse, but we'll just run through them. I just want you to be able to see the structure as we just retell the story, pulling out one or two of the important theological points, and then we'll think about what it means for us. So why don't you spend a minute or two on each one. You ready? Okay, we saw last week, uh, David now knows Saul wants him dead. And he's got no time to get provisions, he's just got to flee. He runs. And he makes it just a few kilometres south. You'll see there's a, there's a map, um, and you'll see how useless maps are once you see the map in a second. Um, basically, he runs everywhere. You go, okay, he's on the run. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is like a cartoon. He's just chasing all over Israel, being chased by Saul for the next few chapters. 
He makes it just a few uh, kilometers south before he stops at, um, at Nob, and it's the center of worship at the time before the temple is built in Jerusalem. And we'll just read the first couple of verses. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you got to hand? Uh, Give me five loaves of bread or, or whatever you can find. Now, why does Ahimelech tremble? I wonder, maybe he's heard some rumors Shocking stories about Saul trying to use David as a human pincushion with his spear. I mean, he just dismissed it as, as palace gossip. But seeing David looking disheveled and alone, yeah, this doesn't feel right. But he buys David's story. David's quite convincing. And he gives him the consecrated bread. And then David brings another request, verse 8. Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Now, there is just a whole lot we could comment on. And and obviously, these verses get quoted in the New Testament. But at the most fundamental level, what we see here is David is on the run without even a roll of bread or a sword. He has nothing, and God provides. He's quite good at providing five loaves in the wilderness. It kind of rings bells, doesn't it? But God provides. And David's going to learn in these chapters that when he has nothing, if he has God, he has everything he needs. Even when he has nothing, if he has God, he has everything he needs. And it's a lesson he's got to learn before he becomes a king who has everything. And will be tempted to trust in his mighty army and his treasury full of gold. Now he needs to learn. God is what he needs and God is all he needs. Now there is one ominous note, the random detail. Verse 7. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Now, classic Saturday evening television when I was growing up was um, Casualty. It was a fictional drama about a British accident and emergency department. It was basically like ER without the very good-looking actors. It was basically... And, uh, it was, but it always began the same way. There'd be some innocuous scene. You know, children playing in a park. Two people climbing up a rock face. A yacht sailing in the sea. And then it would just cut to some random little thing. Somebody drinking behind the wheel, swerving in a car a jagged piece of rock, an old World War II mine floating ominously in the water. And after you watched it a while, you kind of worked out, yeah, yeah, that's not a random detail. The, the drunk driver's going to swerve into the children's park. And, you know, before Scandi Noir, it wasn't the cheeriest of Saturday evening TV, but there it was. It was all that was on. We only had four channels back then. And, uh, you know, the jagged, the jagged rock, the rope's going to catch on, the, the yacht's going to blow up on the, on the mine. You kind of knew, oh, it's never a random detail. And this isn't a slip of Samuel's cut and paste. Doeg is going to prove very, very important. And I only mention that just because it's a a thing that appears so often in Old Testament narrative. Look out for random details. They're never random. Okay. Now, secondly, must be mad to flee Gath, had to be mad to escape. Let's look at verse 10, the next episode. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, You've got to wonder, maybe it's 
holding Goliath's sword that gave him this absolutely mad idea. But I guess there is a certain perverse logic to it. Where is the one place Saul is not going to think of looking for me? I know. How about Gath? Yeah, that's a good idea, David. Gath, capital of the Philistines. The Philistines who you've been fighting for years. And you're most famous for killing their giant Goliath, who was born in Gath. Ten out of ten, everybody. I mean, what? Are you mad, David? I mean, maybe he thinks, hey, look, there's no photos at the time, obviously, and no one's going to recognize me because every Philistine who's ever seen me, I've killed. So maybe it'll be all right, but it doesn't work that way. Word filters back to Akish, and David is now in serious danger. So he turns in this Oscar-winning performance of a drooling idiot and is kicked out of town rather than executed. After all, Akish says, you really think this crazy, drooling madman is the great warrior David? Don't do me a favour. I've got enough nutters around. Get rid of him. It's quite a comic episode, really, but you get an, an insight, an understanding into what it was actually like in the Psalms. So David wrote Psalm 56 while he's in Gath, and he writes Psalm 34 after he's escaped from Gath. And we began the the service, if you turn over in your service sheet, we began with uh, Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You know, in all of 1 and 2 Samuel, in all the battles, the betrayals, the civil wars that David faces, there is only one time we ever read of him afraid. Chapter 21, verse 12. Alone, trapped, hunted and helpless. And afraid. But God delivers him, even from there. Scene three, a motley crew and a prophet of God. Come with me to, um, to uh, chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were dis- in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him and he became their commander. About 400 men were there with him. David started with nothing, and now it has got, well, worse, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Now, as well as no resources, he has a a huge amount of responsibility, 400 people. And this is not an elite fighting force he's got with him, the the beginnings of an army. This is uh, the bankrupt, the grumbling, and the miserable, a ragtag bunch of unhappy people that has gathered. But two things show us that just the amazing provision and protection of God First, uh, do you see verse 3? From there he went to Mizpah to Moab and asks the king of Moab to look after his family. Now, back in the book of Ruth that we were studying last year here as a church, we saw that through the faithlessness of an Israelite woman, Naomi, a Moabite girl named Ruth comes to Israel and becomes a follower of the true God. And Ruth, at the end of the book of Ruth, marries Boaz, and they have a child who has a child who has a child whose name is David. God's amazing, unlikely providence in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. But it means here, on the run, David has a safe place to take his family where he knows they'll be looked after because they've Moabite ancestry and he knows they're outside of Saul's reach. Secondly, uh, at the end of this little section, verse 5, the prophet Gad comes to David and tells him, warns him not to stay in the stronghold, but to go to the land of Judah. God's word is there to guide him. 
and so he escapes. What a contrast between that scene and the next one where we see a kingly court and a prophet of evil this time. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered and Saul was seated, spear in hand, that emblem of his psychotic rage, spear in hand under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing by his side. David's hiding in a cave. Saul is basking out in the open under the shade of a spreading tree. David's got his bankrupt, distressed and discontent. Saul has his court, the great and the good. And you see the paranoia though of Saul, accusing them, verse 8, you're conspiring against me, all of you. He accuses the priest of the same thing in verse 13. You're conspiring. How is it David keeps escaping? You must be conspiring against me. He just cannot. He will not face the truth. God is protecting David. Now there is a traitor, but it's the traitor who is in the service of Saul. Verse 9. Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him the provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. He was there. He knows David deceived Ahimelech. But that's not what he reports. He knows what Saul wants to hear. And so he tells him what paints the priest in the worst possible light. And that leads to the ugliest episode of all, the unholy war and the fulfillment of God's word in verses 11 to 19. Saul pronounces a death sentence against the priests of the living God. It's interesting, Saul's Saul's own men from his own tribe, they balk at this. They say, "Uh, Saul, seriously? No, I'm, I'm not raising my sword. But Doeg is there to gleefully satisfy Saul's bloodlust. And notice what is stressed in the slaughter. Chapter 22, verse 18. The king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, the sign of a priest. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys and sheep. That is a description of a holy war, a war of divine judgment where all are wiped out. Back in chapter 15, Saul's great disobedience was his refusal to carry out holy war against the wicked Amalekites because he wanted to keep the, the loot for himself. How perverse that he is willing to carry out, well, not a holy war, an unholy war against the priests of God. Now, in the horror of it, it's very easy to miss one significant detail, and that is that even here, Saul ends up just fulfilling God's word. Back in chapter 2, verse 28, Eli was warned that because of the wickedness of his family, his descendants would not be priests, they would be wiped out. These evil hands just end up fulfilling the word of God. Responsibility and safety redefined. One man, though, does escape, we read. But David's words as this traumatized, exhausted man staggers into the camp are rather surprising. Verse 22, as Abiathar escapes. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. Huh? (laughs) Um... 
I'm sorry. Saul's hunting you, David. That means that the dictionary definition of safety is distance from you, my friend. But David is learning. God has made a promise that David will rule. And therefore, the definition of safety is proximity with God's promise holder. The safest place to be is as close as possible to the one on whom God's promise rests. And now we see David really growing into his kingly role in chapter 23. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are looting in the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. Saul fights to protect himself and destroy others. David fights to risk himself to save others. These men are pretty nervous. I mean, they're on the run from Saul's army and now we're going to put ourselves out in front of the Philistine army too. This is mad, but they ask God again and he confirms it so they go to defeat the Philistines and save Kilah. And now the importance of Abiathar becomes very clear. Verse six tells us, Abiathar son of Ahimelech had brought the ephod down when he fled to David. The ephod was uh, the device God ordained for receiving guidance back then. Only a priest could use it. It's a bit easier for us. God's given us his word, the Bible. You don't have to be a priest to open God's word and receive his guidance now. Hidden from his enemies by God's protection. Uh, The hypocrisy, I mean, it is extraordinary, the hypocrisy of verse seven. Remember, Saul has been, he was initially anointed to be king in chapter nine, 16, with the express purpose of saving Israel from the Philistines. And then he hears, David has saved them from the Philistines. And what does he say? Saul was told David had gone to save Keilah. And he said, God has delivered him into my hands. Not God has delivered Israel out of the Philistine hands. You'll notice, did you see in the reading, that both Saul and David keep receiving information all the time. The difference is, David keeps receiving information from the Lord. Saul never hears from God. And here the Lord warns David that the fickle citizens of Kilah will indeed hand him over even after he saved them. So he and his growing band escape. And the final sentence summarizes things in verse 14. Day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Let's keep going. Found by his friend for God's strengthening. In spite of royal resources, Saul cannot find David. He's got every spy, every soldier, every tracker searching. None of them can find him. But Jonathan, on his own, manages to find his dear friend in his hour of need. And verse 16 is lovely. It really deserves a sermon on its own, but it's not going to get one. Um, Certainly not now. Saul's son, Jonathan, went to find David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel. What a friend. He points beyond himself to God. That's the kind of friend we all need. It's actually what he's doing in verse 17. He's strengthening David by pointing him to God's promise. It's one of the best things you can do when a friend is facing distress. Point them to God's promises. It's not the only thing to do. I imagine Jonathan gave David a massive hug and allowed him to pour out his heart. But the heart of what he did was to point David to the promises of God. So David finds strength in what God has promised. Not in yourself, not in your men, but in God's promise. It's the last time they see each other. Lastly, betrayed by his own, saved by God's intervention. 
Again, David is betrayed by people of his own tribe in in verse 19. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? Gets very precise. They tell him which hill, the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon. Again, in a dramatic chase, God rescues David. Saul knows the precise mountain and it seems like there is no escape as you read Saul's forces closing in. It just looks like this has to end with David being caught. Verse 26, Saul was going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That's why they call the place Selahamakalakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. There is no circumstance so hopeless, overwhelming or impossible that God cannot rescue his people. Not even a grave three days after a man has been publicly crucified. God can always rescue his king. Okay, it's quite quite an account. Pause, take a deep breath. What do we learn from it? Firstly, two things. Firstly, God will protect and provide for his king. We've seen repeatedly, David is a picture. He points us towards the kind of king that the true King Jesus will be. And these chapters shed great light on Jesus. It's easy, you see, to think Jesus was God and he must have kind of just floated two feet above all his problems. He, he was just, from childhood, it was like he'd had the Bible downloaded like in the Matrix. It just, you know, he just knew everything. He was fully mature and nothing really affected him because he was God as well. But the Bible's clear, he's fully man as well as fully God. It speaks of him having to grow in wisdom. Describes him as an adult as being exhausted, distressed, in anguish, disappointed. The book of Hebrews tells us he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. And one of the reasons why God caused these three chapters to be recorded in such detail is so that you and I, would understand what it was like for Jesus. As the Gospels describe all the things that he's doing, we see in David's life something of the danger and the pressure and the distress that Jesus faced. Mark 3, 6 records that right at the beginning of his ministry, the religious leaders, right at the start, had decided this man's going to die and they start to plot against him. And for three whole years, he's attacked, hounded, hated, hunted. He lives with the the absolute loneliness of leadership and of being misunderstood by everybody. He has the responsibility of providing for this, uh, the 12 disciples and the group who follow him. And as we look at 1 Samuel 21 to 23, remember the pressure, the stress, the temptations to fear and to doubt that Jesus faced every day of his life. But as he trusted God, He learned he could depend on God to protect, his father to provide and to guide. And that meant when he faced the ultimate challenge in the Garden of Gethsemane, will I go to the cross? He had learned he could trust his father through anything. And so he would even face death. And so, look, I don't know what um, what you do on a Sunday evening when you get home, but why not take home the service sheet and read the Psalms that go with each of the sections and see what was going on in David's heart and see what it 
how it helps us to see into the, in the heart of Jesus Christ and see how it helps us to worship him more. But lastly, the Lord will protect those who trust in the king. Because David, of course, is not only the anointed king, he's also a bloke. So he doesn't only point to Jesus, he also points to human beings like you and me. And we learn from his example that we too can trust this God to protect, to provide and to guide. And as the Holy Spirit drives these chapters into our hearts, we learn we can trust God too. Let's put it practically. Statistically, if you're a young person and as a Christian you join the army, you are more likely to die in combat than if you join an accountancy firm in the city. It's just statistics. Statistically, if as a Christian you move on to a very difficult inner city estate to help plant a church, you are more likely to get mugged than if you move to the leafy suburbs. Statistically, if you leave a well-paid job in IT to become a ministry intern, in the long term, you are likely to be less financially well-off than if you stay in your well-paid job. Statistically. But statistics do not rule our lives. The God of the Bible does. And as David learned... There is nowhere that God cannot provide for us. There is no threat from which God cannot protect us. And there is no situation so bewildering that God's word cannot provide the guidance we need. And so very, very practically, you do not need to spend your life seeking after the maximum amount of certainty, of worldly security, and of safety and comfort. We're all tempted to do it, but we don't need to because the God of David is our God and he is just as mighty to protect and to provide and to guide for us. So we can take risks to serve this God, confident that he can protect and provide, confident that when we do suffer, when life does feel painful, it's not because God has failed us. It is because he is teaching us. And just as Jesus was brought to resurrection, we know ultimately this God will work out. Our trust in him will be rewarded. And as we see from the David Psalms, it is when we step out and trust of this God and have to rely wholly on him that our faith grows richer and deeper and more fulfilling and rewarding than we can probably now imagine. These chapters are ultimately not about David, they're not about Saul, they're about God. And they tell us that we can trust him. See, the one who went to the cross to protect us from the judgment of God, and who rose to provide us with eternal life, and whose spirit inspired the Bible for our guidance, he can and he will protect, provide and guide you every day of your life. So trust him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you as we read this incredible account that it tells us not that David was amazing, but that you are an awesome God. Thank you that you are the same God today. And so we pray that we too would learn to trust you for your glory and our good and your witness in this world. Amen.